Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by our host and star of this show. It's On the Record with Jerry Trupiano. We've got a jam-packed show for you today. It's episode 375 on the network. I just want to thank a few people before I pass it on to Jerry. But Jerry, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. How are you, Dave? Doing great. I'm, I marvel at the type of guests you get week to week. You're, you Phenomenal guests, phenomenal relationships, and they always give our audience something to think about. So, But um, to that audience, 60,000 subscribers, we appreciate your support. You guys know what to do. We battle the analytics of the podcast world just like they do in Major League Baseball. So five stars, write some great comments, help us keep climbing the charts on iHeartRadio's powerful uh, podcast network. To our sponsor, Blackout Coffee, Be Awake Not Woke is their slogan. Thank you for your support. 20% discount at checkout. Uh, We'll get you Jerry's code in the show notes. If you need to go on for the network in general, you can use David, capital D-A-V-I-D, 20, get you 20% off. But wait till this show's out there. I'll get the show notes with Jerry's uh, code in it so you can, this this, uh, reimbursement go right back to Jerry to reward him for the great podcast he does. And just want to give you a stocking stuffer idea this year. Our most faithful listener and our very first guest on the show, three-time world champion Ted Kubiak, shortstop for the Oakland A's, has a wonderful book out called Old School, gives his view of baseball, uh, what happened to his national pastime, a little bit on his career. Great stocking stuffer for a baseball fan in your family. And then it has a fielding manual with a great fielding, both the most comprehensive instruction I've seen on fielding to date. Uh, very small, very digestible, uh, but I, I recommend getting both. Uh, with that, Jerry, welcome back to your show, and I'll, I'll hand it over to you to introduce our great guest tonight. All right. Thank you, Dave. Our guest tonight is uh, Albert Breer from Sports Illustrated, Monday Morning Quarterback, has covered the NFL for the Boston Globe, the Dallas Morning News, the Sporting News, a contributor to the NFL Network. Albert, thanks for being with us. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How you doing, Jerry? I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. And let, 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 me, let me start with an easy question for you. Yep. Is this a, a, a typical NFL season or atypical? Um, I think atypical in that, it, you know, it's, I mean, look, like everybody thinks their team has more injuries than everybody else, right? And everybody team thinks their team has the worst luck. Um, this is, I mean, the amount of quarterback injuries, I think this year has been unusual where you can look um, at any given weekend and you can see, um, you know, a game that's coming between two backups that's going to have playoff implications, you know, and, you know, tomorrow night um, the Patriots and Steelers will play. That's Bailey Zappi against Mitch Trubisky. Who would have thought that would have been the case before the year? You know, you got, you know, Joe Flacco starting in Cleveland. They're in contention. You know, you have, um, I mean, you can go down the list of teams that, that we expected to be in contention or that are in contention that um, have had to deal with this. Josh Dobbs is a starting quarterback in Minnesota, um, you know, the, the jets have fallen out of it, but they've gone back to Zach Wilson. So, you know, I think from really that, that, that four minute point of the first Monday night game, you know, when Aaron Rodgers went down on the turf at MetLife, um, you know, we've just had this weird rash of quarterback injuries and it's, you know, I think made it so the AFC isn't close to what we thought it would be. 
Um, you know, and a quarterback injury obviously affects that with Joe Burrow out in Cincinnati. And then maybe the two best teams in the league are in the NFC. Um, and they're teams that have kept their quarterbacks healthy in, um, in Philadelphia and San Francisco. So I'd say, um, you know, injuries are always a big factor in, in pro football. But the fact that there have been so many at the most important position on the field is abnormal. We know the importance of the quarterback in the National Football League. What What is your opinion about the quality of the backup quarterbacks today in the NFL? Yeah, it's a good topic, Jerry. You know, I, I, I think the, the quality of the starters is probably as good as it's ever been. Um, you know, I, I, always, I always laugh when I hear people say, like, you know, it's, you know, there aren't enough quarterbacks. Well, you know, like when I was a kid, it was, you know, Dan Marino and Jim Kelly and, and Joe Montana. And once you got past the first seven or eight of them, though, it was like, I mean, who remembers who the quarterback of the Falcons was in 1988 or the, or the Colts or the, you know, it's just, you go back and you look at it and it's, I mean, I think the depth of really high quality quarterbacks is, is better than it's ever been. And I think the quarterback position they're being developed like golfers now. So you have more prospects that have really high end skill sets. And, um, you know, if you looked at the AFC before the year, I mean, legitimately, you look down the line of the guys that were in that conference when everybody was healthy, Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, Joe Burrow, Lamar Jackson, Justin Herbert, um, you know, Russell Wilson, who you know isn't what he was, but um, has won a Super Bowl, Deshaun Watson, um, you know, and now Tua Tungavaloa coming on. It's just, and that's one conference, you know, and so I think the quality of the starters is really good. The quality of the backups, it's a fair question. There aren't enough of them. Um, and I think a big part of that is, you know, what they've done, and this has affected all parts of the game, but, um, you know, what they've done with the practice rules and how the, um, the, the off-season programs have been cut from 15 weeks to 10 weeks and how there are no more two-a-days in the summer and how during, this, during, during, uh, during the re- regular season, you've, you've got such huge limits on having full contact, full go practices. Um, it just means there are less reps to go around. You're going to have to give a higher percentage of the reps to the starter, and it's going to make it so it's harder and harder to develop the backups. You know, And you don't even have like an NFL Europe where teams can allocate players the way that it used to be. And so um, you know, those rules have affected teams' ability to, to develop uh, depth across the board, but I'd say in particular at quarterback and along the, off- the offensive line, you've really seen that. And I think both those areas, the depth of both those areas has been exposed in a lot of different places this year. Well, there's less practice time now yep. for quarterbacks and quarterback development. But if, if you if you extrapolate that out and go back to what these quarterbacks are now learning and, and the offenses they're playing in high school and in college, mm-hmm. most of them are out of the shotgun and, yep. and throwing the ball all over the place. Back at, when I was first watching football, when the rookie quarterback came in, he held a clipboard for three years. Those yep. days were over. Yep. Yeah, it, it's it's different for sure. Um, and I think that all relates to the job security of the people in charge. Um, you can't afford to sit a guy for that long. You draft him. The, the owner wants to see him. The fans want to see him. And, um, you know, there's a real turning point when it came to that. You know, I think it was 2008 when Matt Ryan came out of Boston College and when Joe Flacco came out of Delaware and, you know, they both made the playoffs that first year. They both started from the beginning. And, um, you know, and, and Joe Flacco that year made it all the way to the AFC title game. And if you look at, like, the starting point, like when they first got on the field as starters, 
for uh, first-round quarterbacks. It really changed after that. The next year, you had Mark Sanchez and Matthew Stafford as week one starters, and it's become a lot more common since. And even for the guys who aren't week one starters, you know, you always hear, well, we have this plan to redshirt the guy, and it almost never works out that way. There are very few quarterbacks that go through their rookie year without eventually becoming the starter, first-round quarterbacks meaning. And so, um, you know, it's interesting. I had a conversation with Matt LaFleur about this, and obviously they've been able to sit Jordan Love in Green Bay for three years, and the reason why is because they had Aaron Rodgers. Um, you know, and I asked Matt, I was like, you know, do you still think it was the right thing to do? This was in the summer. Um, do you think it was what was right, not just for the team, but for the kid? And he said to me, He's like, I think every quarterback should be developed this way. And the reason why, and this was really interesting, he said he doesn't think any of them are ready. And the risk you have in putting them out there is that they're going to lose confidence. And his point was it's almost impossible for a kid once he loses confidence to gain it back while he's playing at that level of the game. It's just, you know, once things sort of come unraveled for you, it's really hard to gain, you know, your ability to really believe in what you're doing and what you're looking at and how you're playing at that high level of the sport. And so, you know, he said, and he said, I, I know it's not realistic for most teams and we had the luxury of having Aaron here, but it's really, really hard once a guy loses confidence. And most of these guys that are drafted in the first round go to bad teams because the bad teams are the ones that are drafting high. The bad teams are the ones that need the quarterbacks. And so a lot of these kids have this, these situations where they go, they, they get drafted to, 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 to teams that are deficient around them. Um, they go to teams that are on, that are unstable and, um, and they're going into an environment where they're normally going to have to play pretty quickly. And that sort of is a recipe for kids to lose their confidence really quick. And like LaFleur said to me, it's, it's really hard for a guy to get his confidence back once he loses it at that level of the sport. Here, here's a strange question and a strange thought for you with ownership being not the most patient people on the face of the earth. And with the success of, let's say, a Tom Brady in the sixth round and, and Brock Purdy, the last man taken in the draft, can you ever foresee the day when teams will gamble and pass on that first round and maybe take that quarterback third, fourth, or fifth round? Well, see, the two examples you bring up, though, are guys who went into outstanding situations, you know, and situations where they weren't in third and long a lot and they weren't playing from behind, you know, that's really where things come unraveled for these kids. A lot of the time is like, if you're going to a bad team, it's not just that the team, it's not just that you don't have great players around you. It's also that you're in third and 15 a lot, you know, and you're in, yeah. And you're playing from two touchdowns behind or three touchdowns from behind. Brock Purdy walked into a situation in San Francisco where he's throwing to Debo Samuel, George Kittle, Brandon Ayuk, they trade for Christian McCaffrey in the middle of his rookie year before he even gets on the field. Um, and he's got Trent Williams as his left tackle, Kyle Shanahan as his play caller. And when you have all that around you, they're not asking you to be Hercules out there. You know, like they're they're asking you to basically run the offense and do your job. And um, that's sort of like how Brady was managed as a second year player. I, might, I know, I know you know this, Jerry. Like you were there. Like it was. They weren't, they weren't asking the world of him in 2001. He wasn't what Tom Brady would become in 2007. And, um, you know, so I, I think it's a fascinating nature versus nurture uh, question. You know, you can say the same about Russell Wilson. Like Russell Wilson went to a place where 
The defense was phenomenal. The run game was great. How often in a game do they really need him to carry the team or make a huge play? Not often, right? That's a great point because when you think of Brady and you think of Purdy, both of those situations saw quarterbacks who had very strong defenses as well. Right, right. And the thing about the defense is that if the score is – seven to six like right like if you're if your offense has only scored seven points in the third quarter on one of those teams it might be okay you know what i mean like with some of the teams these kids are going to it might be 24 to 7 or 28 or 31 to 7 and now like what sort of environment are you playing and you got the pass rushers teeing off you know you got the dbs knowing you're going to throw the ball I mean, it's just, it's a totally different environment to have to learn in and a much harder environment to have to learn in. So, and I think all those guys would tell you that. Like it's, I mean, there's only one I can think of, um, you know, in my time covering the league where you had a young quarterback come in and overcome a really bad situation as a rookie, like a really tough situation as a rookie. And that was Andrew Luck in Indianapolis where the Colts had sort of torn down the roster around him and he was still able to get that team to the playoffs. And I don't think Andrew Luck gets enough credit for it, you know? But, like, if you look at that team and kind of, like, the the the, the state of that roster and where they were in 2012 after what they went through in 2011 and all the guys that they cut and how they'd moved on from so many guys from the Manning era, you know, over the two previous offseasons, I mean, it's remarkable what Luck did you know, getting to the playoffs that first year, but that's a total outlier. You know, normally the guys who have success are the guys who go to really good situations. Like, I'm not saying like, I'm not saying Patrick Mahomes wouldn't have made it, but you know, his left tackle was the first pick in the draft in Eric Fisher. His right tackle was a big free agent signing in Mitchell Schwartz. And he's throwing in Travis Kelsey, Sammy Watkins and Tyree kill with Andy Reid as his play caller. I mean, you know, you, you have to look at these things. These things matter, you know? Um, and I mean, like, I think a good example would be Jared Goff. Like Jared Goff really struggled his rookie year. They put him out there. He wasn't ready. He looked awful. Then Sean McVay comes in there. They make a couple of smart free agent signings. They bring in Andrew Whitworth to play left tackle. They acquire Robert Woods. They acquire Sammy Watkins. Um, Todd Gurley um, is healthy. And look at what they do. You know, I just think so much of this stuff is based on circumstance and a lot more of it is what a kid is walking into rather than who a kid is, um, because very, very few of them are ready to carry a team. I mean, almost none of them are ready to actually put a team on his back and carry him as a rookie. We're talking with Albert Breer from Sports Illustrated. And Albert, I want to go back to something you said earlier in our conversation, because I think it's key. Yeah, talking about the development of quarterbacks, you also mentioned the development of the offensive line. And I think back to my days when I was broadcasting for the Houston Oilers and they had brought in Mike Munchak and and Bruce Matthews, two Hall of Famers and get Leon Gray from from the Patriots, build that offensive line. And all of a sudden they have an offense that clicks and they start winning games. Yep. Yeah. And I I mean, I think um, I think if you ask Sean McVay, he would say maybe the most important signing that they, the most important acquisition that they made um, when he first got to Los Angeles, and it probably wasn't real close, was Andrew Whitworth, because getting the left tackle stabilized the rest of the offensive line. You know, um, you know Tom Brady in in New England, like they they drafted Matt Light um, the year he became the starter, right? Like so they had 
a left tackle in place and, and, and a rookie left tackle that was growing up with him there. The Buffalo Bills draft Deion Dawkins the year before they draft um, Josh Allen. Like I said, the, the Chiefs had the two guys in front of in front of um, in front of uh, Patrick Mahomes. The Ravens had you know Ronnie Stanley and 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 uh, and Orlando Brown in front of Lamar Jackson. Um, you know, even like the the, the Chargers, um, they wind up drafting Rashawn Slater, and that really helps Justin Herbert. So in a lot of cases, in a lot of these cases, you see where you know like the 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 offensive line has is central to the quarterback success i i would argue maybe even more so than who he's throwing to you know um now like you know down the line like i think the ceiling can be t- determined right like by what's around a guy and um you know from a skill position standpoint who he's throwing to but when they're young i think the floor is determined by what's in front of them and that's you know the offensive line as you look ahead to the week 14 of, of the season, of course, it starts tomorrow night, Patriots and the Steelers. And as you mentioned, Mitch Trubisky matched up against Bailey Zappi as quarterbacks. A, a far cry from the uh, Brady Roethlisberger days. What what about this weekend, though? When you when you look at the two key games, Buffalo, Kansas City, Philadelphia, Dallas, which of the two really intrigues you the most? Um. I would say like the the Bills Chiefs game really intrigues me because the Chiefs are sort of I mean I think we all expected that this would be this would feel like a do or die game for Buffalo for a few weeks now right like because of the way their season's gone and you know like how it does feel like the margin for error has been shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and then they go into their bye and that was a heartbreaking loss to the Eagles right like they I, I, Josh Allen did everything he could to win that game. And, you know, the Eagles wind up winning it in the end. And so they're in a must win situation. I think we all kind of had the idea a few weeks ago that this would, you know, be that sort of game for Buffalo, but for the chiefs to come in now coming off of that loss, you know, against um, coming come off of that loss against the the Packers and, you know, with the questions on offense with what they've got um, and can Rashi Rice come along, you know, can, um, can, can, can Patrick Mahomes regain his, you know, regain who he, who he's been, um, late in seasons. Um, it's just that the, I would say the stakes of this one is one the, the, the stakes of this one, make this one really, really interesting. And in that, um, you know, I think we're going to be, I'm not saying sounding the alarm for whoever loses this game, but if the bills lose this game, we're talking about whether or not they make the playoffs. And if the chiefs lose this game, that's three losses in four games, and that really kind of puts you in that, you know, are they going to be, are they who they have been? You know, not that they're going to miss the playoffs because I think their divisional will make it so, you know, they'll have a home playoff game, at least one home playoff game. But um, are they going to be able to go in, on the road and win in the playoffs? And it's interesting too, Jerry, because this is a pretty amazing fact. Patrick Mahomes has never played a road playoff game. They've had home field advantage in every playoff game he's ever played in. Wow. What that, that's a terrific stat. Now, what what about what about if you subscribe to the theory, too much credit to the quarterback when they win, too much blame when they yep. lose. How much pressure is on Dak Prescott this weekend? He's playing his best football. I mean, I thought he was outstanding. Um, you know, last Thursday night against Seattle, and um, you know, I think Mike McCarthy deserves credit too. You know, I I, I 
Talk about pressure. I mean, I don't know. Like I look at it like, you know, Mike sort of took it on himself this season, you know, and I, I think we all sort of looked at it like, and I, you know, it was unfair to Mike, but I think what happened over the last couple of years was that everything that went right for the Cowboys offense was Kellen Moore and everything that went wrong for the Cowboys offense was Mike McCarthy. Right. And now we see like Kellen Moore, who I think is a really good coach, went to Los Angeles and the Chargers offense doesn't look great, right? And Mike McCarthy's gotten more control in Dallas and they look like a rocket ship. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that there's definitely always pressure on Dak Prescott. And this is obviously a great opportunity to catch the Eagles. I think there's pressure on both teams. You know, like I just think, it's one of those games where I think both teams have very legitimate Super Bowl aspirations. This could determine, um, you know, where a, where a playoff game is. You know, I, I I believe the Eagles still would have the tiebreaker, but you know, then their margin for error shrinks to where, like, they could wind up being in the road on the road in the first in the first round if if if, if they slip up again. And so, I yeah, there's pressure on Dak, but I I also think Dak is playing as well as he has, and I think it's a it's a credit to Mike McCarthy and Brian Schottenheimer, who, you know, it's funny, like over the summer, there was all that attention on Dak about like how many picks he'd thrown in training camp and how it didn't look quite right. And, you know, I, I remember talking to Mike about it and how, like what they were doing with him, they were trying to get him to play off schedule a little bit better. So they were kind of mucking it up in camp for him and, and trying to create scenarios where he would play better off schedule. And, I think that's a big part of why we're seeing a better Dak Prescott this year is a lot of the stuff that they were doing when everybody was kind of raising an eyebrow towards like what's going on there. We're seeing these clips all over the place of Dak throwing picks in, in practice. Um, there was actually uh, uh, some rhyme and reason to what they were doing. And now you see him playing his best football. And I think he's prepared to go out there and do that against the Eagles on Sunday too. He's playing as well as he ever has. Since we're talking about the NFC, how good are the 49ers? The best team in football, um, the highest ceiling in football. I, I would say the most well-rounded team in football. Um, if they can stay healthy, they're going to be hard to stop. And um, it's a team with a purpose. It's a team, I think, you know, with a lot of guys who are right in the prime of their careers or in the back end of that. Um, so, you know, like I think it's a team that really is playing with a lot of confidence because you have guys in their prime who are right in their window of opportunity to win a championship. And, you know, I, I can still – remember looking around at their training camp in the summer, you know, and, you know, you're standing there. It's like, Oh, well there's McCaffrey and there's Debo and there's Ayuk and there's Trent Williams and there's Eric Armstead and there's Fred Warner. And you're kind of going through it. And it's like, God, they've got a lot of dudes out here. And, uh, and I, and then it hit me like their best player, Nick Bosa wasn't even there. He was holding out at that point, <laughs> you know? So, um, you know, to have the depth they have, um, and the balance that they have. And really, you know what it is, as much as anything, Troop, is like the 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 the, the depth in the lines of scrimmage, you know? And the Eagles have this too, um, which is, you know, like it's just the ability to come at you in waves with pass rushers and come at you and close games with your offensive line. The Niners really have that. Like their offensive line, they've done a good job building around Trent Williams there. And then the defensive line, you think about it, like they've got, I mean, Javon Hargrave and, and Eric Armstead and Chase Young and Nick Bosa. And it's just, I mean, Randy Gregory, it's just like guy after guy after guy. And, um, and they're so well coached, you know? And so I, 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 I wrote after the first week of the season that I think the Niners um, had the best roster in football. Um, nothing's moved me off of that. They had their little slump there. 
Um, but they, I still didn't think they the best roster in football. I think Brock Purdy's playing really good ball right now. He's doing exactly what they need him to do, which isn't be a world beater. It's to, you know, play point guard out there. And, um, yeah, I mean, whether it's Philly, that Dallas, whoever it is that they, uh, they wind up playing in the divisional round or the, or the, the, the championship game, if they're full throttle and they have their full group of guys, I would take them over anyone. In the AFC, is Baltimore the team other teams would hope to avoid? Yeah, I would say, like, I mean, I, I you know, it's it's weird because I, like, look at the Chiefs, and I still there's still that thing in, back, in the back of my head that they're like the Patriots used to be, where it's like they they hit these ruts in the season, but and we all kind of look at it and dig into it, and, you know, is this a real problem? And, um, you know, it almost feels like they've gotten to the point where they do use the regular season to work their problems out. You know what I mean? Like, so – like what I mean by that is like last year they were playing, I think it was five or six guys, like a lot on defense, right. From the rookie class. And all those guys were sort of learning on the job. So it's guys like George Karloftis and, and Trent McDuffie. And um, you know, like they, 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 they were getting all of those guys a lot of time and a lot of work. And by the end of the season, it looked a lot different than it had in week five or week 10. And, you know, now they've got a really good defense and a lot of really versatile weapons, guys they can kind of move around and mix and match. And it's like a really good group on defense. And I, I sort of feel like that's what they're going through on offense right now, where they're figuring out the receiver spot. They're trying to continue to develop Rashi Rice and, 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 and Sky Moore. And you just get this feeling in the back of your head that they're going to they're gonna work it out. But I would say, I would agree, like that I think Baltimore is probably the most balanced team. And I think Baltimore is going to sound weird. Baltimore has the two best wins of the season. The way that they just completely annihilated Seattle and Detroit and, I mean, dominated two really good teams, I think shows you where the potential for the group is. And I think it shows you what John Harbaugh's plan was when he turned over the two coordinator spots over the last couple of years. That's you know Mike McDonald taking over for Wink Martindale on defense and then, and then Todd Munkin taking over for Greg Roman on offense. And so, you know, they, they've, they've fortified themselves at receiver with Zay Flowers and Odell Beckham. And, you know, defensively, you know, the addition of Roquan Smith kind of, I don't think that that's gotten the attention it, it, it should over the last year and a half, but he's been a game changer for them. So um, I think Baltimore is probably the most balanced roster. And, I, and I'd, I'd call them a favorite if I didn't, like, look at Mahomes the same way I used to look at Brady, which is like, I mean, he's probably going to be waiting there for the Ravens in the championship game. When, when you talk college football, so many so many people talk about uh, Jim Harbaugh. But let's let's talk about his brother, John. Does John Harbaugh not get enough credit for what he's done? Oh, he's done, done a great job. Yeah, he's done a great job. I mean, one thing he does as well as anybody, Jerry, is like he just – he manages his team. He manages people really well. And, um, you know, like they they've always done a good job of getting the right kinds of guys in there, guys that sort of fit what they want. Um but I, I just think like the the culture there is such it's it's really unlike a lot of other places in that, you know, if the limit on practice time is two and a half hours, they're gonna go two twenty-nine. And like, you know, if if you know, like you can hit like three days out of ten in the summer, they're gonna hit three days out of the ten. And um, you know, I think it's because of that, it's it's usually a really tough, resourceful team and usually a really close team, you know. And, um, 
like I said this to John a couple of weeks ago, I said, it really seems like you like your players. You really like your team. And, you know, he said it was a good observation and, you know, he just, I, he said how he liked how they, the guys sort of take up for each other. And I know it sounds corny, um, but you know, he's, I, I would say like that sort of speaks to his strength is he's a really good team builder and like, he's like his brother this way, like Jim is this way too. He's really good at finding coaches, you know, like they, I think one of the most underrated things for any head coach is your ability to fill out your staff. And it's not always about finding, you know, whatever it is, the best 15 or 20 assistant coaches. It's the same as building a team. It's finding the 15 or 20 that fit together and that can execute the the, the plan the most coherently. And it always feels like he's got coaches that are going to work for his players. Like building for, for Lamar is a perfect example of it, you know? Like Greg Roman was his was was his brother's OC in San Francisco, and they built those great offenses for Alex Smith and Colin Kaepernick, both of whom were you know like option quarterbacks in college, more or less like spread option quarterbacks in college. And so you know they bring him to Baltimore, and Greg Roman builds a run game that is the most difficult to deal with in all of the NFL, and centered around Lamar Jackson. And they built an offense not to like be ahead of anybody or you know be the the new thing. It was they were building an offense for the players that they had. And, you know, like that was sort of the idea too. And now going to Todd Munkin and that, like, I think there was a feeling and, and John hasn't told me this, but it's sort of like me reading the tea leaves that um, he needed something that was going to, you know, help Lamar take the next step and build an offense for like Lamar Jackson 2.0. And Todd, he goes and gets Todd Munkin from Georgia and who's got a lot of, who's, who's very creative um, and could add in the passing game. And now you see what they've got. So I just think that that's like really what John does is like he manages people and he knows how people fit together. And I think you've seen that now for, what is it, 16 years in Baltimore um, that, you know, when they need change, he'll make the changes. And he's not afraid to make changes that might not seem at the at the time like the, the wisest changes. He's not afraid to do that stuff. Um, and more often than not, they're right when they make those sorts of changes. For those of us who have been around this game for a long time, we all know guys who have been in it, and they come away with battle scars, bad knees, bad shoulders, yeah. mangled fingers. What about what about reporters who had to deal with Bill Belichick, which he did <laughs> on, on a daily basis? Back I, yeah. Globe. How was that? I remember when I was – I remember being there every day when I was younger, and I – um, you know, I actually sort of like the challenge of the press conferences. I'll admit that now. Like, I – I don't know. It was always like, can you get him to say something, you know, and, um, you know, can we keep up with him? And you know, he would like, he would put you in these situations where like he'd say something back where he knew there was no response. And it was like, could I be quick enough to respond? You know? So, um, you know, I know it looked, I, I know it's looked very combative at times between me and him. Um, you know, when I was younger and, um, but I never meant it that way. I mean, it was just, it was sort of, I, like I was always like, like when I got in those sorts of back and forth, like everything I was doing was sort of specific to whatever job I was in, you know? So I, when I was a beat writer, I had a friendlier relationship with him than when I was a national reporter because of the sort of information I was trying to get out of him, you know? And um, I've always looked at it this way. Like I, I think like our jobs don't always fit into theirs, you know, like I, our jobs naturally should clash some. And it's healthy that our jobs rub up against each other some. And I I always say this to every coach I cover. I'm like, if you have a problem with something I said or something I write, like call me and tell me. And 
I'm not going to, you're not going to like everything that I, that I say or that I write, but I hope you think it's fair. You know, like, I hope you think everything that I'm saying and, and I'm writing and, you know, and, and, and everything, I, I hope you think all that stuff is fair. And, um, you know, if I can be fair about it, I think then, you know, you get the respect to the person on the other side of it. And, and sure, it's like a little more difficult with Bill, but I learned a lot doing it that way too. Like, I, I always say this, like, I, I think one reason why, you know, I was able to advance in my career is that, um, I, my first two beats, like I covered such different teams and such different environments and covering, you know, Bill Belichick and the Patriots and Wade Phillips and the Cowboys. I mean, it was just, and I respect, I respect the hell out of both those guys. It's just very, they were very, very different. It doesn't mean one thing is right or one thing is wrong, uh, but it was great for me to get to see like, Hey, all these teams don't work the same way and they have different rules and there are different norms. And so, you know, when I got to the point where I was covering all 32, I understood that I had to sort of cover every team with a little bit of a different approach because every team's run a little bit differently than the next. What's your thoughts on the speculation about uh, Belichick and his future? Oh, I mean, I think, I, I think, I think Robert and Jonathan Kraft aren't happy with the state of the franchise. And, you know, I think that they're going to get their pound of flesh and, you know, whether or not that means Bill's gone, I, I don't know for sure. I think only two people know that. And again, those two people have the same last name. Um, but, um, you know, my guess would be this would be it. Like, it does feel like this is, um, it does feel like this is a fait accompli at this point. And I think, you know, what's really interesting about it now is if it is it, then what's the form in which it ends? Um, is it a firing? Is it a trade? Is it a mutual parting? Have they talked about it? Have they worked through it? Like, because I think that's something that only Bill and the Crafts would know. Um, you know, I said this a couple of weeks ago, Jerry, like I, you know, coming out of that bye week when they were coming back from Germany, like I, if I was Robert, I would have gone to Bill and say, what you want, what do you want to do? Like, how do you want to handle this? And, um, you know, Scott Zolak, who I, I, I'm sure, you know, like I do radio with him up here in Boston, you know, like I, I said that to him and he kind of put on his Belichick voice and he said, what do you want to do about what? So that might be the response you get, but, you know, I do think like they're, I think this is something that, that's going to require, if it's going to be graceful, it's going to require some planning and some discussions and everything else. And, um, you know, I, I think it could get messy if, if the crafts, you know, insist on, on getting compensation for him, Bill could say, no, just fire me. Um, these things don't often, often end pretty. I, I don't think that, that, that Robert Kraft wants to fire him. Um, but I, but I do think that there's, there's certainly a feeling and a lot of people in that building, you know, are asking the question, like, how is this going to end? Cause I mean, most people feel like it is going to end when we get to the end of the season. So you think he'll coach somewhere else if it does? Happen? I do. I mean, like I, I like, again, this isn't from the horse's mouth, but the people I talk to that people I talk to that, that, that know him really well, don't think that he's done coaching. Um, now sometimes that's not up to you. You know what I mean? Like, so he's got to have opportunity out there, but I do think that there'll be opportunity for him. Um, you know, I was talking to one guy with the team who said he thinks there's two guys who are guaranteed to get job offers after this year. And it's Ben Johnson, the OC with the Lions and Belichick. Um, I think it's going to be a narrow, a narrower, uh, field of teams competing for him be just because it's sort of the same as Brady, where if you were going to pursue Brady, you needed to have a bunch of things in place. You needed to be in a city he wanted to go to. You needed to have a roster that was ready to win. You needed to have a coaching staff that was willing to adapt to what he was going to do. 
Um, so, you know, like it naturally narrowed the field and to the point where there were only really two teams in it in the end for Brady. Um, so I, I think it could wind up being a small number of teams that are after Belichick, but I think there will be opportunity out there for him to keep coaching if he wants to. And it'll be interesting to see whether he does or not. But the people I've talked to that know him really well don't think that he's done coaching. Does he have to divest himself of some of the things he's involved in and, and just think about and that's, that, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I, there's always the option with these guys. Um, you know, guys of that stature where do you want to go be an executive somewhere, right? Do you want to go be like the, you know, whatever the executive vice president of football operations, like Bill Parcells was in Miami or, you know, what Tom Coughlin did the second time around in Jacksonville. Um, he's so close to the Shula record and he loves coaching so much that I don't know that that would do it for him. Uh, and on the flip side, if somebody's willing to hire him as a coach, like based on his track record with personnel, are they going to give him the sort of control that he had in New England? That seems a little less likely too. But I think there's a pretty good chance one opportunity or the other will be out there for him. Um, and if he insists on having both or he needs to have both, maybe it becomes more difficult. Um, you know, but I, I, I would think like if he wanted to coach, he could find um, help to find a GM that he really trusts. And and maybe he does what Andy Reid did because that's what happened with Andy Reid. Like he, he left Philadelphia, was fired in Philadelphia and, um, had all the power when he was the Eagles coach, uh, the same sort of power that Bill has in New England, and just decided I don't want to do the personnel stuff anymore. I'm just going to bring somebody I trust, and I wound up being John Dorsey with me and let them handle it. And um, I don't know if Bill's at the point where he'd be willing to do that, but if he is, I certainly think there will be opportunity for him to coach out there. How many coaches do you think are in trouble elsewhere? I mean, I think the number is between seven or ten. It's always hard to say because there are always a couple of uh, surprises, I would say. Um, I mean, obviously, we already have a couple in Carolina and Vegas and those being open. Um, I expect Washington to be open. Um, you know, the Chargers certainly have been, you know, there's been a lot of speculation about them. The Chargers job being open certainly wouldn't be a surprise to anybody. Uh, and then I'm like looking down the list, maybe Chicago. Um, at the NFC South, the teams that don't win the South and, you know, excluding just Carolina, um, you know, if Tampa doesn't win the South, I think that could be open. If New Orleans doesn't win the South, that could be open. So I think because the number was smaller last year, you'll get somewhere between seven and 10 this year. Is the one and done thing for coaches a growing uh, situation? Yeah, yeah, I would say it is. Um, I don't think it's going to become super duper common. But, like, I, I, I think, you know, it's a product of a couple of things. It's like, number one, it's our society being less patient than it's ever been. Um, and, and as a result, owners feeling the heat from their fans. And, um, you know, it's harder to get fans out to stadiums than it ever has been before. So, you know, if, you're, if your fans are disengaged, you know, I, I always say, like, apathy is worse than anger. Um, yeah, that can get an owner's attention, you know. Um, and so, like, I think that – that's one part of it. The other part of it is these guys are making so much money. Um, the television deals are so lucrative that like eating three or four years of a contract isn't as big a deal to them as it used to be. And, um, you know, you certainly see that in Carolina where, you know, right now they're paying two former head coaches and Matt rule and, 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 and Frank Reich and will be for the next couple of years. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think that the one and done thing, I don't think it'll ever be, super common where a guy's in the hot seat six games into his, into his tenure in a place. But, um, but I, but I, but I don't think that that trend of like maybe one of them 
every couple of years is going away. Let's let's end the conversation with with this one. How about your surprise team this year and the team that's really disappointed you this year? All right, my surprise team this year. <clears throat> I'm looking at it right now. I I would say the Broncos. You know what? Like the Broncos, the Broncos. I think are better than I thought they would be. Um, the two that the two that really have surprised me are the Colts and the Texans. Those two teams right there in the AFC South. They're only a game back at Jacksonville. I thought Jacksonville was going to run away with that division. Um, Shane Steichen's done it. We've talked about quarterbacks at the start of the conversation, and the uh, all these guys getting hurt. Anthony Richardson's another one. They've gotten there with Gardner Minshew to seven and five. Supremely well coached team. You know, they still have work to do on the roster, but it certainly seems like they got it right. Shane Steichen. And same goes for the Texans um, with the job that D'Amico Ryans has done. And I mean, CJ Stroud now, they'll have him on a rookie contract for the next couple of year, w- years. They've got a ton of cap space. I mean, they suddenly have gone to, they've gone from maybe like one of the least watchable teams in the league the last two years to one of, to, to, to maybe one of the four or five most watchable teams. Um, I like those two I'd say are my pleasant surprises. Uh, I mean, the Patriots would have to be the disappointment, right? Like I, I didn't think they were going to be great, but I thought they would be like middle of the pack. I picked them to miss the playoffs, but if you had asked me to specify on that, I would have said they would have been like the ninth or 10th seed with seven or eight wins, maybe nine wins, like right in that range. And so to fall this far short of it uh, is really, really tough. And, the Titans would be another one that, you know, I knew they were retooling, but maybe I didn't think that they'd be the second worst team in the AFC. So those would be, those would be two to chew on. And I think Carolina is an obvious one, right? Like I, I, I didn't think they were going to win the NFC. I didn't think they were going to win the NFC South, but I thought they'd be competitive and they really haven't been. And the Jets are the Jets. Well, the Jets, yeah, like that's hard though. Cause it's like, it's a quarterback injury. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, so if you yeah. had told me Aaron Rodgers was going to get hurt, and then, like, all hell would break loose when Aaron Rodgers got hurt. Like, that wouldn't have shocked me. Would it have shocked you? No. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if no. Rodgers stays healthy, maybe this all looks different. But right. you tell me Aaron Rodgers is going to get hurt in the fourth play of the season, you know, I, I would say, yeah, like, four and eight sounds about right. Well, yeah, four and eight and, and not much of an offense. And they go back to Zach Wilson. And some things never change. Like Albert Breer having a great handle on the National Football League. Anything you want to plug before we let you go? Uh, you can always catch my podcast, uh, the podcast I do with Connor Orr. We got some new stuff coming too on that front, so keep your eye out for that. And then, of course, uh, you know my Monday call, my Tuesday call, and all the stuff we're doing. It's right there on the website, the mmqb.com, and and uh, and yeah, and, and Sports Illustrated too. So uh, I think most people know where they can find me, right, Jerry? I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. And the name of your podcast? Uh, the MMPQB podcast. Uh, it, and it's you can get it wherever you get podcasts. Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, all that stuff. Albert Breer, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for the time. Awesome. Thanks. I appreciate it, Jerry. All right, Dave D'Agostino, take it away. Bring us home. Oh, Albert, I got one question for you, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah what's up? Do you see any of these college guys... Uh, another Harbaugh, for instance, or a Ryan Day making the jump to the NFL this season with so many potential. Harbaugh, I think, yeah, I think Harbaugh is in play. Um, I think because of the NCAA stuff, um, I he sniffed around the last couple of years. Uh, I think if somebody offers him a job, there's a good chance he goes. 
I think you'll hear Chargers, Raiders, Bears with him. Uh, you know, I the, 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 those are. I, I think I think there's a there's a really good chance that he goes back to the league this year. I think Ryan Dale will eventually wind up back in the league. We'll see. Um, we'll see when that is. I don't think it'll be at least for a few more years. Um, and then you know, I think that there are a couple of you know names that we've talked about in the past. Um, the teams could at least sniff around like Lincoln Riley would be one. His, his star may have fallen a little bit, but still a really good coach and good, really good developer of quarterbacks. And, um, you know, I think another one would be, would be Matt Campbell at Iowa state who almost took the lion's job a couple years ago. A lot of people in the league think really highly of him. He's another one whose stars fallen a little bit, but, um, I know NFL people think really highly of him. And then, I, if you want, if you want to ask me, like my my my, my opinion on what somebody should do, yeah, um, I don't like. I look at what Kirby Smart's built at Georgia, and I'm just like a little surprised no one's taking a swing at him. You know, I just think, I don't know. I think so so much of this is being able to build a staff and build a program, and um, you know, Kirby's like player development and program building and all of that's exemplary. Now, it'd be hard to get him to leave his alma mater for sure. Um, but that's, that's one you look at and say, man, I, I wonder if at some point somebody's going to make that phone call. Hey, Dave. Yes. Yeah. I got to jump in for a second because I owe Albert yeah. an apology. I, I mentioned Jim Harbaugh and, and Albert went to Ohio state. <laughs> oh, and I, I didn't mention Michigan, but I, I think I owe you an apology after no, that. Oh, no, no, no. It's all good. I, uh, I, 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 this is not the best topic of conversation for me right now. Yeah, he was very. It different. was for twenty years, though. It was yeah, a great. Was. It was a great topic of conversation for twenty years. So we've taken our lumps. We'll get them though. All right. Well, thanks for the time. What about what about a Nick Saban? You see him making a jump back ever? With all this, uh, no. I think I think I, I think that ship sailed. I think yeah. that ship sailed. Yeah, but, he's in a good spot there. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's funny because you know I. I, I remember hearing when he went to Alabama. One of the things that he regretted this is after he left the Dolphins. Um, one of the things he regretted about leaving LSU was, well, you could have been Bear Bryant at LSU because they don't really, you know, they, they, they may not have a coach of that stature, like that sort of legend at that school. Um, and Cod, like, I think if he wins this year, he'll have more national titles than, than Bear Bryant. Is that right? I believe I so. You're right. Yeah. Which is wild. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I guess that'll be Bryant Denny Saban stadium now. Um, yeah, it's, it's amazing. The, 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 the legacy is carved out there. It's just, I mean, I, I, I feel like, and I, I wasn't alive for it. So I, I don't know, Jerry, I don't want to, I don't want to date you either, but maybe you can speak to this a little better than I can, but it feels like we're watching like the football version of John Wooden, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and going back to the Michigan Ohio state game, it brought me back to Shem Beckler and Woody Hayes. Those, those yep. guys. Yeah. Uh, and, and we've kind of missed that in college football with, with all these teams jumping conferences, and I used to do the Texas uh, Texas A and M game, and yeah, you know, they, they parted ways. You, you kind of missed that. That's the thing is like that, but that's what Kirby Smart is. At, I, I think that's what Kirby Smart is right now, right? Like that's, yeah. what he, that's what he's become at Georgia, and like he has a chance to be that sort of legend there, you know. Like, and that there's value in that, you know what I mean? Like, um, so so yeah, it's it's pretty interesting, and I like trust me, like having a dad from Detroit and I go back four generations in, in the state of Michigan and like a ton of Wolverines in my family. I, I know all about that rivalry and I used to be on the other side of the fence. So, um, so yeah, I, I definitely have an appreciation for, for the history of that sport. 
Yeah. We kept them long enough tonight, Jerry. How we, we, we extended them a little. People may not remember, though, I was at West Virginia coaching basketball, and we saw an ESPN, and we all just couldn't believe it. Rich Rodriguez was named head coach at Alabama about 24 hours before yep. Saban. He turned it, accepted, turned it down. And uh, boy, how the different paths have. that worked out well for Alabama. Yeah, yeah they both did it right there. Out. Yeah. Yep. Well, Jerry, another great interview. I, I uh, always enjoy your guest. Albert, thanks so much for your time. You gave you our audience it. a treat tonight. 60,000 subscribers. You know what to do. I don't have to remind you. Blackout Coffee, we appreciate your support, continued support. Let's support Jerry here on, on the podcast at checkout when you guys buy your coffee for the holiday. Capital D-A-V-I-D 20 until we put Jerry's out there, which will be tomorrow morning. Uh, Jerry, thanks again. And to Ted Kubiak, get that book old school. Great book for your baseball lover in the family and his fielding manual. Tremendous add-on to a great Christmas here. Jerry Trupiano, episode 375. This is On the Record with Jerry Trupiano. Thanks so much, guys. Have a great night. Take care. All right. Thank you. Yeah.